one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. everybody to another episode of the Talking Space podcast. This is Talking Space episode 604 for the week of Monday, January 28th, 2014. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Oh, I can't wait, Sawyer. If if this show is going to be any more fun than the pre-show was, you guys are in for one heck of a treat. I can't wait to start this. Oh, you are not kidding. And tonight we are joined by somebody different, but somebody just as special. Joining us tonight is one of the co-founders of the Spaceflight Group and the person who helped get us on board and helped Talking Space become a part of the amazing Spaceflight Group. You should check them out if you haven't, but in the meantime, please welcome to the show, Jason Ryan. Welcome. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you on. So we're going to start off right away tossing things to Jason to talk about the latest launch, and that was an Atlas V, which lifted off from the Kennedy Space Center this past Thursday, which is the 23rd of January, 2014. And at 9.33 p.m. Eastern Time, which is 2 a.m. GMT the next day, the Atlas V lifted off carrying Tedris L, which is the newest satellite in the tracking and data relay satellite network. And as I mentioned, Jason, you were there for the launch and the days leading up to the launch. So um, how about you fill us in on the sights and sounds of Tedris L? Sure thing, Sawyer. Well, it was uh, what they NASA does during these events. They have what they call shuttle palooza, And basically, uh, they cram in all these little events uh, that are around uh, the launch time so they can maximize both NASA's investment as well as, you know, the, the journalist time while they're there. So for this one, generally what always happens is the day prior, they have uh, a lot of events going on, and the first one is rollout. Well, I know for folks that are above uh, the state of Florida, you know, geographically speaking, you don't really think we have cold weather, but it was in the low 30s, high wind being blown, and we're out there at around 10 o'clock in the morning, and it was painfully cold and we're waiting for the rocket to roll we're waiting for the rocket to roll it's beautiful beautiful weather i mean uh, for me one of the, the most and a lot of people say oh i like night launches but uh, i always like it when there's a blue blue sky and then we had nothing but severe clear i mean totally clear skies but i kept sitting there and people were watching me i was facing away from the rocket and everyone else was you know of course all the photographers there are taking pictures of the rocket and they're looking at it and i'd lean my camera over and i'd look in my little viewfinder and i'd take some pictures because i'm not a photographer i just take some images from time to time and so they're like why are, why are you not looking at the rocket i'm like i have seen probably 15 to 20 rollouts of an atlas 5 i've been there i've done that i've got the t-shirt i'm not jaded but i'm also not a fan of the cold so um that happened and then later on that day we had to go back out for a remote setup now as you noted, Spaceflight Group, uh, of which Spaceflight Insider is kind of our news branch, 
we're working really hard to put all these little things in place that make us the premier news website. And one of them is, of course, a fleet of remote cameras, which take pictures of the pad during launch. We're new. So a lot of our stuff isn't really ready or in place yet, and we get a little bit of it kind of late. In fact, the triggers that are sound activated and the cameras on, we didn't get them till we were getting on the bus to go set up remotes. So long story short, uh, the, the uh, adapter that would have plugged into the trigger into the, the camera we had for my particular remote wouldn't fit in the box that we'd made. And uh, I'll touch on more on that in a little bit. But um, so we just figured, hey, let's just take some pictures of the rocket around the pad. And again, glorious, very cold, very blue, that, that very slate blue sky with that just that, that icy feel and the beautiful white atlas sitting there. It was just amazing. United Launch Alliance. I mean, almost everything they did was like clockwork. Even when they had issues, it was just solved really quickly and they were moving out. The next day, there were, was a couple of events that I guess you're going to have me chat a bit about later on. But, uh, you know, launch goes down and uh, you're down to the wire and you're waiting. I'm, I'm over there handling. We have three different things we put out information on during launch. We have our live mission monitor. We have Facebook and Twitter. And what we do is as soon as we get information from either the PAOs that are directly in front of us at the press site or we hear it over the monitors, uh, from the feed we get from NASA, or most cases ULA, we put that, those updates live so people can see it and, and find out what's going on. And we try to get information that a lot of other folks don't have out there. Because I think we have one, and then there's a couple other outlets that have something similar to that. So we're only one of three that I think offers that at that, that kind of pace. And then, of course, what a lot of folks don't know or may not realize in our particular case, and it's something that we're learning might not be a good thing as of this launch, is that's automated for us. So when it gets to, I want to say it's team for Atlas, it's team minus four minutes, we go automated. And the computer is putting in all these things that are uh, we know that an Atlas 5401 will do. And then, of course, as you know, it didn't launch at 905. <laughs> things kind of went off the rails because they had problems with the um, communication system from Hangar AE, as well as, I want to say it was KU band uh, from the teacher spacecraft itself. And so launch director shut it down and says, hang on, we're going we're gonna to reset. And of course, we're over there trying to shut all our stuff down because it's going automated and, and they're posting things that aren't happening. And uh, it was kind of surprising because generally when something like that happens, you know, most out, most launch service providers will just stop what they're doing and they'll you know, put their stuff in their in their in briefcase and call it a day and come back the following day. But they worked the problem in real time, and some uh, what 27, 20, 28 minutes later, the they they pushed the button and that Atlas went off the pad like clock. I mean, just just beautifully. I mean, beautiful night launch. Hey Jason, can you talk a little bit about the problem? I, I, and I was trying to understand really, really what what, what the issue was. Uh, I understand it might have been an RF issue, and they were talking about a workaround where. They were going to use, I guess, uh, some hard lines rather than right. using, you know, the the RF signal, which they were having some problems with as far as getting telemetry and so on. So I really didn't understand exactly what was going on. Could you? Do you have any further insight? Yeah, I'm I'm looking at what we had on, online. We got that from the PAOs. Essentially, uh, the data dropout occurred between uh, the Tedris spacecraft. This is what we heard at the time. So I, there might have been a change to this later on if this is incorrect. I apologize, but uh, basically TDRSL and Hangar A were not communicating with one another. And the RF, the, the data relay, there was a dropout and it wasn't getting um, uh, the information it could. So when it, what they did here apparently is NASA is now relying on hardline data from Hangar AE. So if I understand that correctly, they 
they went from because of the data dropout they had, they had to skip away from um, direct line the uh, spacecraft transmitting to a direct feed, and then of course they solved that 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 solved the problem. And they went ahead with launch. I fully, really didn't fully understand the problem, but now I kind of do. So I, I appreciate. Oh. The only way I, I can describe it, and I got to be honest with you, I'm, I only play a rocket scientist on TV from on, from time to time, and <laughs> so uh, I mean, I, I, I don't I, I don't understand everything myself. And it was like, you know, from what I understood while I was there was the teacher spacecraft was apparently transmitting data, and judging from their use of the word hardline, I'm guessing that it was an automated like VNRF signal, like uh, pardon my you know crude nature of the description, but radio. Uh, so the radio was the data was dropping out. The telemetry wasn't going through, and I guess they went to direct hardline between Slick Forty One and Hangar A. That was the best description I got. But but uh, you know, at the end of the day, to be honest with you, I wasn't really satisfied with that answer either because it just seemed incorrect. Uh, but you know, I don't know everything, and you know, yeah, again, uh, it could be it for the uninitiated that might be listening to the program for the first time and just trying to figure out, you know, what is this thing called Tedris and why do we need it? Can you go ahead and shed a little bit of light on that? Back in the day, they had ground relay stations. So when they had astronauts on orbit, probably seen it on, if you watch the right stuff, they would be at these distant locations where they would, as they passed by overhead, they would pick up signal. And like you always say, Gene, it's like, oh, we're about ready to go loss of signal. What that really means is they would go beyond the horizon and they would get picked up in nominally by the next data relay station in the uh, network. But NASA knew from as far back as then, that's kind of a uh, it's not really efficient. It's not really um, effective. So what they started doing is in 1983, they, well, it actually goes back to 1973 when the actual teachers program was initiated. And in 1983, the first one of these satellites launched Top Challenger. And um, the shuttle fleet, I think, launched, and I forget, forgive me if the numbers are wrong, five. And what some people may not realize, but since it is a week of memorials, Challenger, STS-51L with Krista McAuliffe, they, their payload, their primary payload, was actually a Tetra satellite. And, uh, of course, it was lost along, unfortunately, with, with the orbiter. Um, I think uh, that went on for quite a while. And then the second generation uh, launched of these satellites launched between 2000 and 2002. And, of course, the third one started, the third generation started last year with the launch of Tetra's K. Essentially, what these things do is they relay information from different points and uh, what I got from NASA was some 17 different missions that the space agency manages, transmits the data, the video, all that good stuff, the audio, through these satellites to points on Earth. They are in geostationary orbit, and essentially they relay the data from the International Space Station, the shuttles, uh, the launch vehicles that are, are, that are ascending. Instead of coming down, they actually they, uh, they also uh, transmit via teasers. Uh, the Hubble Space Telescopes, all those beautiful pictures that you see coming from Hubble, those are all thanks to Tedris. Um, but Tedris wasn't the only reason why you folks were gathered down there. As you mentioned, there were yeah. other things going on down there. Um, I understand, too, that uh, uh, Sierra Nevada had some news that uh, we may want to go ahead and shed some light on. Yeah, that was that was really a cool event. And to be honest, it kind of came up last minute. I think I found out about it the day before I left, so that would make it January 21st. And that was Sierra Nevada basically wanted to give everybody when you know because the, the the eyes of the world focus on Kennedy when there's a launch, and so they wanted to 
you know, wave their flag and let folks know what they were doing. And they basically had a very successful free flight test last year, excluding a certain anomaly that no one, I think, has, has been able to show me any Im- images of, which I'm a little concerned about, but okay. Uh, but they've had a very good run of things. They During their flight profile, they, um, you know, because they do model testing of, of what this thing, what, what a landing of a Dream Chaser should look like. And they showed us the thing and the, the, the slide for this, and they said, well, there's two there's two lines there. You know, try as we might, we could not see the two separate lines. So essentially, what they predicted would happen did happen. And all total, there was Robert Cabana, with the, who's the NASA Kennedy Space Center director, uh, Michael Goss, who's, I want to say, the president of United Launch Alliance, uh, Mark Sarangelo, who's the head of their uh, Sierra Nevada Space Systems, Space Launch Systems, Frank DiBello, who's in charge of Space Florida, um, Top of my head, who are the other two? Steve Lindsay, another former NASA astronaut, and he works for Sierra Nevada now. And Larry Price, Lock Mart. And, you know, they basically went over what they've done to date and how close they are. They still, you know, basically they want to let the public know, yes, we are still on track for November 2016 launch of Dream Chaser. And that was, you know, very, um, a very, very interesting to hear that. But I, I think the most the coolest part of that, and it kind of threw me, there were two things that really kind of threw me when they had this conference. The first being is they kept saying ONC building, and I thought they must be misspeaking because I know ONC is being used for Orion, and I'm sure I'm going to be chatting about that in a minute, but I kind of got clarification. I'm like, yeah, we're going to use ONC for Orion and for Dream Chaser. And I thought that was kind of impressive. So it's like the public, if everything goes according to what NASA has planned, they can see NASA's next human-rated vehicle being developed in one bay, and then a couple bays over, there's Dream Chaser coming back from a mission to the International Space Station. My, my one question focused on this is I'm, I'm a bit older. I remember what the early pictures of shuttle said the shuttle program was going to be like, and, of course, it didn't live up to those images uh, very much at all. And so when I saw how simple Sierra Nevada said pro- the processing flow for Dream Chaser would be, I made sure to ask that question. I said, hey, you know, can you really say that we're going to be seeing something that simple? And, and you know, Steve Lindsay said that, uh, yeah, you know, we took all the lessons we learned at Shuttle, good and bad, and we implemented them here. And, of course, we have 30 years of experience on Shuttle, and there was a lot of stuff on Shuttle that was designed to handle that big, heavy payload capacity that the orbiter had to have. And we didn't need that. So it made the processing flow for Dream Chaser much, much simpler. And, of course, it's based off the HL-20 design, which NASA helped uh, worked on back in the day, too. So, it, all in all, it, was, it, was, it didn't break any new ground, but it did give you kind of a, a moment to catch up on what Dream Chaser was doing, where it was at. Um, they were very accommodating. They, had ton, they, they allowed you to ask all the questions you want, and if, you know, time permitting, then afterwards you could still chat with them, too. So, it, it was a good event. I was glad they held it because, you know, we're always hearing about SpaceX, and when it comes to Kennedy... You don't really hear a lot about Dream Chaser or, you know, every once in a while you might hear about CST-100. So I, I was really glad they had that event there. I think it was very beneficial. And actually now, if I remember uh, recently, the Sierra Nevada's talking about the Dream Chaser flying now in November 2016 uh, aboard, speaking of Rocket and Atlas V. Yes, it is. And there was a good quote by Mark Sarangelo, and I made sure that it closed out my article on the subject. And he said, look, guys. If it's good enough for John Glenn, it's good enough for us. I mean that I thought that that pretty much sealed the deal. I mean, it, you know, it, the Atlas is a very is a venerable launch vehicle. It's been around for many years in different iterations, and uh, you know, generally, 
when I come out to a launch and I've seen, I've covered 53, I've lost count of how many actual launches I've seen, but I've covered 53. Generally, they the, the flight controllers come in, the time comes to push the button. I'm speaking metaphorically, of course, they push the button to launch it. The launch takes place right on schedule and everybody goes home. I mean, it's, it's hyper-reliable. It's just kind of funny to me that it's coming around full circle. Here we are going going to go ahead and man rate the Atlas again. I mean, uh, John Glenn's Atlas was was literally the structural uh, integrity of it was was held together by the liquid yep. inside the vehicle. The pressure so, of the liquid, yep. Yeah, exactly. So Atlas has come a long way since then. And as, as you folks have, have already indicated, it has built quite a good reputation for being highly reliable so we shouldn't have you know any any real serious problems man rate rating that particular uh, uh expendable launch vehicle well so, you know there's there, there is one thing i'd like to interject there when people think man rating they always say the vehicle but a lot of people don't say is that's not entirely accurate you don't just man rate the launch vehicle you have to man rate the pad you have to man rate the systems uh because obviously without a crew on board, you can simplify things a great deal, and that includes pad operations, that includes the rocket itself, and the supporting system. So when you think man rating, you actually not—it's just not the vehicle. Are they talking about launching from Complex Forty One, or would we yes. be launching? Okay, so so we would have to go ahead and, and build a, uh, a structure to support human spaceflight around launch Complex Forty One. No. Well, it's funny you should mention that. I've actually spoken with the good folks at United Launch Alliance, and I'm planning on doing a uh, article which will appear on our news website, spaceflightinsider.com, uh, where we detail whether or not they're going to uh, man rate 41, or whether it's going to be um, the things they're going to do to it are going to be uh, kind of like what you see at Launch Complex 39B, where it's they call it the clean pad concept. But I don't mm -hmm. think. ULA is going to go that far into it. I think what you'll see is have elements that are kind of rolled out to the pad that are man rated, and or something to that effect. I, I don't I don't really know. I'm trying to I'm trying to knock down the door as we speak to get get an interview on, on that. I think that'd be a fascinating topic to discuss. Yeah, that's one of the one of the things I'd I'd also love to love to hear about. We may have you back back over here to 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 talk about that a little bit more. So just to come back here a little bit with. Um, uh, the uh, the flow around Dream Chaser. Uh, you were asking how complex it would be, which you know, as opposed to shuttle and so on. Um, it, to me, I would figure Dream Chaser's flow would be a little less complex because to me, Dream Chaser looks like it's a less complex vehicle. Did Steve Lindsay, when he when he answered the question, kind of go into any specifics as far as you know the flow, or did he give any kind of uh, did he give it any kind of uh, you know, background data as far as what he thought the flow would be? No, he, he really didn't. If, if memory serves, he just uh, went over the fact that, you know, they had 30-plus years of experience on shuttle, and like you said, you know, the, the, the orbiters that NASA employed were far larger, far more complicated. They had to do uh, so many more things. I mean, they had the payload bay, and he, he, they, they did mention that, you know, uh, Dream Chaser could carry cargo and crew or a mixture of two, but it'd be nothing like what Shuttle did. There's no remote manipulator system, no, no you know, Canada arm on, on Dream Chaser. There's none of that. Um, so really, and also, I think one of the things that he mentioned, if memory serves, is hypergols. There's no hypergolics on Dream Chaser, and that you guys have no idea that makes things 
so much simpler, so much easier without those those volatile chemicals involved. So um, you kind of confirm what your question was, and that is, you know, it, it's not going to take that much to do uh, to handle Dream Chaser and the flow and the turnaround. And if memory serves, he said that, and you'll forgive me if my numbers are off again because I'm a journalist. My numbers are always horrid. Um, Discovery did 39 missions, and he's hoping that each version of uh, each iteration of, uh, of Dream Chaser can accomplish that that those many, and and have a very quick turnaround time as well. The only thing that I look at at that is, and I, I guess I'll know more when I can see the Dream Chaser for myself. But I've followed Dragon pretty closely, and there were a lot of thoughts and conceptions about what it would be like to fly into man raid and all this crew raid apologies and. I don't know. I mean, it's just a capsule-based system, and they're finding out how complicated that is. So if you're going to do something with wings, it's going to have landing gear, and it's going to touch back down at the SLF. Does that make it – shouldn't that, that – to me, that to, mentally, at least, that's, it says it should be more complex, I would think. But uh, he kind of downplayed that. So, I mean, I guess time will tell. Did OPF2 – Again, get mentioned at all in this this whole matrix because I know uh, Boeing essentially has OPF one, I believe, for the X thirty seven B, and OPF three, I think, is going to be the home for CST one hundred. Is is OPF two sort of still up for grabs right now, or is last last we heard, we have not heard anything about two. What we heard was uh, there's a funny story behind this. We you know they did much fanfare where Lloyd Garver and Senator Bill Nelson, a lot of people came down and they announced that Boeing was going to be taking over. Uh, I get the mix up. I want to say it was three. And a year or more goes by and Boeing never signed the lease. And then finally they got around to doing that. And it seems like right after they got done doing that, they tapped out OPF-1 to handle the X-37, which to me, I, I, I kind of saw that happening anyway, because if you think about it, um, it's a lot of expense to fly a reusable space plane all the way from California to Florida, especially when you have that ginormous landing strip there. I think um, the only thing that would cause them to do that, and I'm kind of going off topic here, sorry about that, um, is is the security issue. Because yes, we know that the X-37 exists. Yes, we know it's doing these long classified missions, and we don't know what, what's going on there with that. But there's very limited access to that spacecraft. So I, it'll kind of open the doors a little bit more to it, I would think so i don't know i mean um i haven't heard what happened with, with the other opf but i gotta be honest with you if they're my view of, of, of this like this and I'm, I'm taking this a little bit personal uh, my views my opinions right now is this um we had the vision for space exploration the constellation program and that got canceled and that scrapped seven years of work and billions of dollars worth of money and i really don't like waste so that bugged me so NASA has since been directed on kind of this two-pronged approach. One, it will go handle beyond Earth orbit exploration as kind of a pathfinder. And meanwhile, these commercial companies will handle LEO. So my view on it is this. I really hope someone grabs that remaining OPF and use it for that purpose. I really hope that takes place because the last thing we'd want is to have a space agency that every four years or so is being pulled in another you know direction under a new vision. I think what... You know, needs to kind of happen is if, if that's the route we're going on and we're starting to see progress and momentum down that way, then I hope OPF2 does go to a, a commercial company. And, you know, I, I wish them all the best on that. Oh, geez, don't get us started here with, with <laughs> the demise of Constellation. And, uh, uh, yeah. Oh, so, <laughs> boy, we, we've, you know, you're among friends. <laughs> Did there, I open a door? 
Oh, uh, yeah. maybe. So many, you, no, you didn't just open it, Jason. It just flew wide open. Um, one <laughs> so let me thing, just ask this. Is there a bit of logic to what I'm saying there? Oh, oh no question. Yep, yep no I think question. so. <laughs> one of my big stances anyway, and, and folks that have listened to this program for, for quite some time can, can go ahead and, t and attest to this. One of the, the things I've been saying is pick a direction and let's, let's stick with it. Yeah, uh, and uh, I, I talked with uh, uh, Kent, Kent Rominger over at ATK, and and he, in in effect, said the same thing. Let's pick a direction and let's let's stick with it. We just seem to reinvent the wheel every every four to eight years. And it's that, funny that's you should mention. Stop. It's funny you should mention Kent because I, when they were working on Liberty, I, I spoke with him, and he said, "Look, you know, this argument that it's either exploration or Leo is a false argument. We need both." We need someone to handle Leo, but you know that way NASA doesn't have to focus on it. And, and if you know they can do it for the costs that they're claiming, then that frees up that amount of revenue that NASA was spending on those responsibilities, so it can do the, the stuff. Let's face it, the most expo the, the exciting stuff: going to the Mars, going to an asteroid, or according to one NASA official, maybe even building a lunar lander. Yeah, that, that's another. That, that, that's I know the call went out just this week. I think, and Sawyer, you can confirm this with me or not. Uh, NASA put out a, a contract for uh, for commercial companies to go ahead and try to build a, a smaller a lander of some sort to, to deliver robotic payloads to the moon, possibly, or to other places. I know uh, Mazden Aerospace has been working on something like that for some time. We've, of course, got the Morpheus lander working here. Um, which was also part of a project that, oh, don't get me started, I wish we would have done this one, uh, called Project M, which would have delivered a uh, sort of a Robonaut-type thing to the moon um, as, a, uh, as a test to see if we could deliver it to other places. So, I mean, that, 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 that's a tragic well, loss. Well, well, Gene, when you were talking about Lunar Catalyst, I'm actually right. not. I'm actually talking about, quote-unquote, a lander that would have been attached to Orion. Yeah, exactly. Okay. That's where I'm sort of getting at here, because somebody had mentioned that. Well, how come we're not we're not you know talking about a human lander or, or anything like that? Well, we had one that was called Altair, and oh, yes. it, it was scrapped. So, um, I, I mean, to me, without Orion, without Altair, is is just just doesn't work because it's been it's been you know damaged in some way. Or at least its capabilities are, are, are damaged in some way. Well, the thing about that that you kind of mentioned, Orion without Altar doesn't kind of work. I mean, the, the, the thing that bugs me is we've been down this road before. Everyone says the shuttle program, the shuttle program, the shuttle program. That isn't correct because in the beginning it was never the shuttle program. It was the shuttle station project. And basically the politicians got involved again and they said either or. Well, the reason where you bit, we were going to build a, sh a shuttle was to, to construct and man a space station, and of course we didn't get that space station until you know the late '90s. And it's just, I, I'm really tired of politics when it comes to space efforts because you know they'll come in at the last minute and find the most irritating way to mess everything up, and it's just it's frustrating. So yeah. Yeah, I, I kind of understand that. That was the the Nixon administration. In fact, you couldn't say space station yep. around James Fletcher. It was a then NASA administrator. It was a it was a bad word. Um, speaking of Orion and all that, you had a chance to to see what Orion's up to in its uh, preparations uh, for its first flight coming up this year. 
that that's a mixed bag there in that, that, that first statement about the year because um, we had an event with uh, NASA's uh, pro- a production manager for Orion, Scott Wilson, and, of course, Lockheed Martin's Larry Price. Uh, Jules and a couple others were out there. And, and, you know, they're great guys, and but they're not politicians. And so I have to wonder what was said that wasn't supposed to be said. First of all, let me start off that I've had one of the best experiences with Orion ever when uh, NASA Administrator Bolden was down for MAVEN. And they had the spacecraft unveiled, and it was, you know, it was a beautiful white spacecraft behind him. And, you know, you really got to see the vehicle. Well, that's one of the rarities because we've had another Orion event, I want to say about a year and a half ago. And you couldn't, it was in this loads and structures test article that basically pushes and pulls on the craft to test what it's going to do, you know, during launch and in orbit. And, uh, Really, you're, we were told we were going to come see the spacecraft in, in film and, and you know video, and you couldn't see it. It was 60 feet away behind yellow tape, and it was kind of like a little bit frustrating, especially for someone like me who has to do a two-hour drive to go over there, thinking they're going to see X when they really end up seeing Y. So it was a, okay, fine, whatever. And then I thought, well, that's just one time, a little rookie mistake, whatever. And the Bolton thing happened. I thought, okay, good, they they got their game on, and we go out there, and we're right in the middle of the lobby where where Scott's presenting this thing uh, about. He opens his presentation about Orion, and of course the doors are opening and closing, and you know. Uh, the audio in there was terrible, but I was recording, and he points to the access hatch, to the uh, the mating adapter, I guess, if you will, um, and he goes, yeah, this, this, is, this is where a possible lunar lander would go, and I'm kind of like, I beg your pardon? NASA Administrator Bolden and Barack Obama have said there will be no missions to the moon. He scuttled all that. We were going to go to an asteroid. So I kind of wondered it, and then they, they you know, Larry Price kind of let it slip uh, later on, too. There was one very interesting thing about that besides the, the the lunar you know lander gaff was uh they kind of let it slip that they're definitely looking on making orion more like the international space station project in that uh in terms of kind of a barter system with in-kind trades they'll get the european space agency involved and we'll have um uh, you know multinational crews flying on the station so i thought that was very interesting but the spacecraft itself couldn't really see it. it. It was there, but, you know, it was like the uh, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain covered in mylar in this this little small clean room they set aside for. We didn't really get many good shots of it. I uh, got a little bit of good information on Orion. I'm looking forward to it. But um, Scott Wilson said we're still on for a September 18th launch date. But um, I've gone to NASA's consolidated launch schedule, and there's no such critter listed there. So... I think it's going to be kind of tight, and I'm not sure we're going to see Orion launch this year. I hope that we do, and I would love to be wrong. Why do you think that is? Do you think – is it a scheduling thing, or do you think it's budgetary, or – You guys are going to get me in trouble. I just know it. Let me just not not, not touch on that. Let's just say there's some concerns there from within that I think uh, you know they, they kind of see Orion as, as a holdover to on Constellation that doesn't exactly do the program all that much good. I also think that – as they are working to develop a 21st century beyond Earth orbit spacecraft, they're realizing different things. They're also trying to work within the budget, which you know brings ESA into the equation. So I think as they're going along and, and doing these tests and, and figuring out how they want uh, this mission and, and the program as a whole to proceed, they're encountering these little potholes in the road that are kind of slowing them down. Um, you know, NASA Administrator Bolden, when I when I spoke to him a while back. 
you know, I asked him point blank. I said, is there any way to accelerate this? And he was very, you know, very polite and very straightforward. He goes, you know, I, I think, you know, uh, 2014 is, is, is fast enough. I think that shows that we're taking enough risks and being ambitious enough. We don't want to push any more than that. So don't get me wrong. I, I still see all the updates that say that we're still on board for that, uh, for a, a late 2014 launch. But anyone that covers this for, you know, as short, as short a period as I have and as long as some other folks have, you tend to get a vibe and you, 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 you learn to pay attention to that little gut instinct. And it just kind of does not feel like 2014 is going to happen. I would imagine if it was 2014, it'd be later. And then if that happens, there's a lot of launches that are scheduled at the Cape. So it might slip to any early 2015. So I'm not sure. But I'm, I'm still very hopeful that we'll see a fall launch for a Delta IV Heavy with a man-rated vehicle atop. Keeping our fingers crossed. Um, the other thing, too, that, that we've talked about here is this old space versus new space idea, which I think is a load of, well, hooey in plain English, and I think is divisive and really divides the space community into two camps. And I see it out there. I see it out there in social media. I see that out there when I'm talking to folks um, at, at different events and so on. And that's not helping us any. It's not helping us have a, have a, a good front in in getting things done and getting things moving but i think you, you so eloquently put uh, the term this is now space and i wish people would start using that instead of this old space versus new space nonsense yeah you know and that's the thing it's like um the thing that kills me is it's not just the fact that we we have this division but that the division is is very clear and i i think the old and new is actually a, a good way of phrasing the division and i mean as much as i'm opposed to it because the old space are tend to be more reserved. I don't want to say uh, more mature, but older and uh, in some ways more polite and show manners. And I, because I've been assailed, insulted, had received, like I told you, in the green room, expletive laden emails, all because I asked a question or made a statement that the other side didn't like. And I, I'm really disappointed in the actions of these people because you're the, supposed to be the future. You're, you're the ones that are going to be picking up the mantle of where NASA has been for the past 50 years. And what does it say about this movement if that's how you th you think acting that way or behaving that way acceptable behavior? Uh, so, you know, when I was at my last – one of the outlets I worked for in the past, I, I, I waged this, you know, it seemed like a never-ending, you know, battle for decency. And I, I'm just not in the mood to play the game anymore, but it's, it's very disheartening. For me, because I have, I have a, I'm like anyone I think in 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 space. I, you know, just deep size and starry skies. I, I love the space program. I'm, I'm all about it. But after six years of, you know, being attacked by people who should be working to make allies and alliances, they seem more interested in burning bridges. And I just, I, I don't, I don't know, Gene. I, I don't know what to tell you there. You're you're among friends. I've been sort of, you know, uh, waylaid into by uh, by one or two uh, organizations on the on, on the quote news space side. So um, I've been to a couple of uh, conferences where I've been kind of you know, waylaid that way. So believe me, you're among friends there. Just to, to, to wrap this all up, what was you think the big takeaway from your your couple of days over at KSC? Well, the one thing that NASA always does is they say that you know we're very excited, we're thrilled to be here. They have these. And I hope I don't honk anyone off when I say they have what I call empty events, where there's not really a major announcement to be made, but they just want to get you basically updated on what they're doing. And there's no meat there. Like, if you go in and see Orion and you can't see the spacecraft, what's the point? 
but you know, for the photographer's point of view, but from mine, I'm, I'm fortunate that I shoot video, audio, and I'm, I'm doing, I'm writing articles too. So, um, I, I think overall, it lets you know that the space agency is still alive and kicking. Because, and I'm not kidding you, we we we'll go out there we'll, we, after we're done setting up remotes or, or attending an event, we'll go to like one of the restaurants and they'll they'll see that we're wearing these shirts with like you know, spaceflight group and come up to and say, hey, what do you do now that we don't have a space program? I'm like. Where do you live? And he'll go, oh, Titusville. Did you see that launch the other night? Yeah. Okay. Well, we have a space program. Okay. That's what that launch was about. That wasn't fireworks. And we actually get questions like that. So in a way, um, as blunt as this is, I think it's a good way to let folks know NASA is still alive. I I do feel that um, with teachers in place, it's an indicator that space communications is still very much necessary. And uh, I spoke, like, uh, like I said, to Mr. Badra Yunez, and he was talking about the new form of space communication that uses uh, high-amplitude lasers uh, like they used on Laddie. And, he, you know, the, the amount of data we can relay is, is, is up for an exponential explosion, according to what they told me. And so you got the communications array that's being in place, and you've seen the spacecraft launch for that. And then you see the man-rated spacecraft, which will test, do the, take the test flight out. It'll go out to 3,600 miles, just come screaming back into Earth, and it'll validate or it either will or will not validate the systems and all the work the engineers and technicians have put on that. And if that if everything goes according to plan, the first unmanned flight of uh, Orion will take place in 2017 with the first manned flight 2021. Now, I um, have to express concern there. I, I don't I don't think anyone's going, uh, you know, there's really not much of a space program if you can only launch once every four years. But I talked to Dan Dumbacher a while back and he said, look, we're going to try to get that to where the mission is at least once every year or every two years at, at worst. And we're just going to keep whittling it down until we get it in line uh, and, and under that, that guideline. And maybe then. Uh, but it was, you know, Gene, it was kind of a mixed bag. It was, um, you know, you saw what Dream Chaser was up to and that we could be seeing a test flight out of that in a couple of years. And, of course, SpaceX is going to be launching hopefully the next year or so. And, and you know, you have all these different man-rated vehicles that are about ready to launch and you have the communication system that's going to be in place to, or I should say be upgraded to allow us to transmit the data for them. So I guess the word, you're, what you're looking for in a, in, a, in a nutshell, which I'm not very good at is, is, is it was a very hopeful experience because you saw a lot of the little elements in place that suggested that things are going on the right track and that NASA and its family of uh, government and commercial sponsors are working, you know, with what they had to do the best that they possibly could. I think this conversation regarding, you know, the, the space program is still alive and going uh, segues perfectly into our last topic. Uh, there's a lot of news, but I think that what we covered with Jason, I think that tops any news stories that we could have covered with the exception of one, which is why we're bringing that up. This is the fifth year of Talking Space, and as so, this is the fifth Remembrance Week. This is NASA's Remembrance Week because of three events that occurred within a very short period of time of each other, all of which are some of NASA's darkest moments. However, this year, since we've been dark about it for five years, I think this year we're going to take a look at it in a slightly different light than usual. However, we of course do have to mention what that is, and that is on January 27th, 1967, the crew of Apollo 1 was lost in a fire. On January 28, 1986, the seven-person crew of Challenger was lost 73 seconds after flight. And on February 1, 2003, the seven crew members aboard the Space Shuttle Columbia 
uh, lost their lives when the shuttle was destroyed upon re-entry. And all that, again, one bad week for NASA, but the space program is alive, as are these people's memories, and as is, I think, the hope for the future. I think that's something you wanted to talk about, right, Gene? Thank you, Sawyer. Um, yeah, I kind of wondered uh, how I was going to go about preparing for all of this, for this. I know this is sort of like our fifth year, and we've talked about about this, and we've talked about uh, what today really meant to all of us. Um, I was way too young to uh, remember Apollo 1, and uh, of course, I've talked about my experience with uh, with Challenger, and of course, my experiences with, uh, with Columbia, personally. But um, I thought, how really would they want us to commemorate all of this? And how would those people, if they were here, would say, hey, this is what you should do to go ahead and remember us? All right, I'm not a parent, but if I were, I would be taking my child to a science museum of some sort. I'd be taking him or her to a planetarium. And I'd be taking them to a, you know, even to, you know, over to New York, for instance, to, to see uh, the Orbiter Enterprise or, or something like that, just to say, hey, um, this is what we're capable of doing. And to try to get sort of the next generation enthusiastic about the mission of, you know, of Apollo 1, of STS-51L and STS-107. And I just try to go ahead and get that next generation excited about spaceflight and excited about about uh, our 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 future in space. And I think that's that's the best way to commemorate these people's lives. The other thing too, and Jason, you sort of alluded to it um, about talking about your trip over to the Kennedy Space Center. And uh, I kind of remember an old essay that um, none other than Wayne Hale wrote. He sort of said, what would these guys think? What would all of these folks think about what's happening now with, with the space program? And I think the best way to go ahead and, and, and keep the legacy of these individuals alive is to try to go ahead and give back to them the space program that they would say, yeah, I'm proud of that. Uh, that would really, really be the best monument to all of those all of those folks is if we went ahead and continued their mission and made sure that we had a very very strong space program going forward and not sort of the oh we might do this and we might do that and the indecisiveness that we're, we're kind of seeing now i'm going to throw it back to you guys and and kind of add, have have you guys add your two cents well i'm going to agree with you i i mean it's definitely obviously a sad time, but I think that it is a way to look back so that we can look forward into the future. And I think that no matter what we do, no matter where we end up going, obviously right now we're talking about the indecisiveness of where NASA goes, but no matter where it goes, this is always going to be a part of it. So rather than just, you know, remembering it, learn from it, make it an active learning tool as we go into the future as a thing to never forget. Apollo 1, it happened in 1967, Challenger 1986, Columbia 2003. All We're talking 10 years ago, 28 years ago. We're talking a long period of time since they've happened, but 
they are still very, very impactful today. And uh, I'm actually going to quote something that I wrote earlier on Twitter. Uh, and, and this is kind of the point of what I'm trying to get to. And although it's about me, this is not necessarily entirely about me when I say this tweet. Quote, Obviously, it's a sad day morning loss of the Challenger 7, because I should interrupt on this recording date, it is January 28th. However, the families wanted to take a tragedy and turn it into triumph. Now, 28 years later, although the Challenger is gone, its mission continues and people like me who have been touched by Challenger Centers. Challenger Centers, if you don't know, the Challenger Centers for Space Science Education were created by the family after the disaster with the goal of continuing their mission of education and inspiring the future. I finish off with saying, quote, Although it's terrible what happened to the Challenger crew, today their legacy is a reason to celebrate the future of STEM. And I think that's the truth, is that do we have somewhere to go in the future? No, but we have people who went somewhere in the past, whether they made it successfully or not, who are saying we need to continue on. We didn't die in vain. So wherever we go, whatever we decide, don't forget. And I think we need to remember that as we look at this next generation of people who are getting into the STEM field and who will hopefully be these next astronauts that go to, whether it be the moon, Mars, an asteroid, or wherever we decide to go. And that they have to remember that they're riding on the shoulders of giants who have made it into space and made an impact, and also the shoulders of giants who left their mark despite not making it all the way. Well, for me, um, you know, of course, I grew up in Florida, and uh, I remember Challenger. But Columbia is a watershed moment for me personally because I had gotten off of work that morning, came home, and was putting my uniform away, and then I kept hearing, you know, that they were talking about the families on either Fox or CNN, and they said contingency. And I remember one of the reporters saying, well, what does that mean that they landed another airport? And it really... Of course, at that time, you know, uh, as I told Sawyer and Gene, I was uh, working as a corrections officer. One emotion in particular was pretty much always very near the surface, and that was anger. So the first emotion I experienced was deep, resentful anger because the public was oblivious to what we were doing, and they had no idea what these folks were doing on orbit. They just knew that they went into space. And um, there was a moment for me where I either could continue going in every night and wondering if I was going to get stabbed or attacked or what have you, or I could try to make people understand why this is important. And so I went and got an associate's degree. Once I had that, I walked up to my lieutenant and I handed in my letter of resignation. I then got my bachelor's degree, entered at NASA not once but twice, and ended up with a degree in journalism and public relations. Columbia was the catalyst for where I am today. And um, I, I just wish that everyone out there understood and respected what these people did, but also understood and respected the fact that we're all one family. We all believe in the same thing, and that is the future of space exploration. And we need to start acting like it uh, because we spend a little bit too much time fighting amongst ourselves and not enough time finding the similarities in working for positive change. And I think the reason why we have the space program we have today, which is in very confused, vague statements from politicians that point in this direction or that, is because you get what you get what you uh, give. And we this is we got the, uh, the the politicians we deserve and we got the space program we deserve. 
we spend so much time fighting amongst ourselves that different groups have keyed in on that and found it for a way to use their own purposes. And I often wonder what would happen if we weren't fighting amongst ourselves. What would happen if we stood as one? What could we accomplish then? And I hope before I get too much older, I'll be able to see at least some of that take place. I couldn't have said that any better, Jason. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I think with that, this year we remember the crews of these missions in a much happier light than in the past. Obviously, the tragedies are tragedies, but turning tragedy to triumph, I think that's what we're about. And with that, that brings this episode to its conclusion. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Jim McCulka. Godspeed, the crew of Apollo 1, the crew of STS-51L, and the crew of STS-107. Thank you, folks. Yes, indeed. And uh, thank you as well very much for joining us, Jason Ryan. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. Ad Astra, at uh, Peraspera. <laughs> well said. And uh, let me just add in a question for you here. One more before the end. Uh, if people want to find out more about you or the Spaceflight Group or anything you or they do, where can they go? Well, the main place they can go to is spaceflightinsider.com. That's spaceflightinsider.com. That is our flagship site. The Spaceflight Group is comprised of four separate websites, Insider being our news website, Heritage covering history, politics, deals with policy and opinion, and the soon-to-be-unveiled Spaceflight Media will have all the goodies of video and still imagery collected from the pads and the uh, great photography team that we have on staff. But uh, they can go to spaceflightinsider.com and see our, our work. We're under a constant state of change. We're only about four months old. And so we just went under a redesign for our primary site. And heritage and politics will soon fall under that redesign. And we have very cool things which will be announced hopefully by the end of this week. So please stay tuned. Oh, yeah. And link to that will be in the show notes, by the way. And uh, I may also throw in a link to your Facebook and Twitter account so you can follow those too. Money. You guys are the bomb. <laughs> Thank you, and you guys, the listeners as well, I should add, are the bomb for joining us, and we hope you'll join us next week. But until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are. Mm-hmm.